Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. A warning to the American media from a Russian journalist who covers Putin. Welcome to the era of bullshit. Facts don't matter. Don't expect any camaraderie. Expect a lot of sycophancy and softballs from your quote unquote colleagues. You're always losing. This man owns you. He understands perfectly well that he is the news. You can't ignore him. You're always playing by his rules, which he can change at any time without any notice. His fans will not care if he lies to their faces. While you're busy picking his lies apart, he'll spit out another mountain of bullshit and you'll be buried under it. So that's from a piece by Alexei Kovalov, a Russian journalist who has covered Putin and who wrote that to American journalists following last week's Donald Trump press conference. Guys, I have been feeling lost since the Trump victory. I have been, well, I've been doing what we've been told we should be doing. The media is supposed to be having a deep, introspective soul searching since Trump's victory. How could we get it so wrong? Now, that's not really my problem. I, I'm not a pollster. I wasn't predicting a Hillary Clinton victory. It's also probably relevant here that I'm a Canadian journalist, not an American journalist, and I don't cover American politics. But I also just don't buy the idea that, you know, journalism has lost touch with the common people because that assumes that it's like our job to reflect the sensibilities of the people who read our news. So no, none, none of those reasons that we've heard so much about feel like they're at the root of why I've been feeling so confused uh, these past months. And I'm trying to get to the bottom of, of, of where those feelings do come from. I guess part of it is just that there is no getting around the fact that what we do only exists if people are paying attention to it. And, and you know, there is an aspect of what is the big story right now. And we're just getting dwarfed. I mean, more so than usual, even what is happening in America feels so much more important than the daily business of talking about Canadian media, about talking about Canadian politics, Canadian culture, because we're all just holding our breath right now. But there's something like beyond that. I have this, this sense, this dread that the rules of everything have changed and we just don't know it yet. And this is beyond the tumult of the industry. I just have this feeling that 
something major has ruptured in the way that we document what happens and present it as journalism. And that something will have a name one day and people will be able to make sense of it. And they'll explain a certain story about how it came to be and what was the day that everything changed. And I feel like that day may have already happened and we just don't have that name or that understanding yet. I don't know if I'm making much sense here. I want to explore this a little bit further. And one person who I've been reading about discussion of some of these ideas, particularly about what is happening with celebrity culture in contrast to just news media culture. Uh, and a lot of ideas beyond that is Canadian journalist Jeet Heer, who is an editor at the New Republic magazine, a uh, magazine about American politics. And he's going to join me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Shane Vandesipe, Katerine Glagorievic, John Fraser, Blake Robichaud, Brendan, Mike Filar, Shauna Ginsberg, and Julian Higuere Nunez. Julian, why did you decide to be awesome? Because you create content that I enjoy listening to on a weekly basis, and I believe that if you have earned my listening habits, you deserve my respect and my money. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. And this episode is brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks. FreshBooks, of course, is the accounting solution for small businesses and entrepreneurs that can't afford an accounting department FreshBooks is your accounting department. It is so very easy to use FreshBooks, and it is increasingly becoming this powerful tool that helps you deal with every money aspect of your business, from tracking your hours, sending your invoices, dealing with expenses, getting a sense of a projection of what is coming in and what is going out and what you stand to make in the months ahead. 
dealing with your taxes. It's all there at your fingertips in a very, very easy to use format. They just rebuilt the whole thing. You can try this out for free. You've heard me say that before. Have I told you that you don't need a credit card to try it out for free? You can just start using it for 30 days absolutely for free when you go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. You will find that it gets you paid quicker. You will find that it saves you time to get back to work on your actual business. And then if you do become a customer, tell them who sent you. Thank you, FreshBooks. I'm not even sure how to uh, begin this because like, it's a very broad kind of thing I, I want to get at here. And we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do with it. What I'm wondering is, how do we do our jobs from now on? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, I can explain that question a little bit more detail, but I'm wondering how you take it. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Sort of, sort of. Yeah. I mean, you might want to like, give me some sort of context. Like, like, like what, what do you think is preventing us from doing our job? <laughs> we have different jobs, and and they're and they're strange jobs. You're, you're you're editing the New Republic from your home in Regina. Yes. As uh, American magazine, I'm doing media criticism and media reporting of the Canadian media. So it's a very different question to you and to I, and, it's, and then it's a totally other different question to people who are actually covering Trump or American politics directly. Yeah. But it, it reverberates everywhere, right? Like you, you can't get away from it right now. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. One place to start with Trump is the area that sort of Canadians will be very familiar with, which is Rob Ford. Toronto media had to deal with many of the same issues with Rob Ford that the American media is now discovering with Trump. And you have people like Daniel Dale, who's had the good fortune to deal with both of them. He and uh, some of his other colleagues, I think Robin as well, have sort of written about you know what they learned from covering Ford. Broadly speaking, the problem is that you have a politician, a figure in power, who is a total liar and who's very skilled at riling up parts of the population, mobilizing parts of the population by waging a war on the media and sort of sidestepping traditional checks on a politician. I think what both Ford and Trump sort of show is just how little checks there are. I mean, I think when Ford happened, I had the thought, which I think was wrong, which is that it only happened because it's at a municipal level. And so the traditional checks that are on a politician on a higher level don't apply to him. That is to say, if he had been a provincial politician or a federal politician, he'd have to belong to a political party. And that political party could, like, you know, repudiate him and overthrow him. And what Trump shows is that I, I was actually wrong in that analysis, that, I, that you, can actually, you can actually do this at a higher level. You can actually, he got the Republican nomination. And once he got that, the party is so partisan and is so strongly opposed to the Democrats, and there's such loyalty that even people who didn't necessarily agree with him or dislike many aspects of him are willing to go along. So how do you cover something like that? And I think Daniel Dale made a couple of very useful suggestions in terms of the importance of sort of fact-checking, you know, importance of like trying to do straight news as much as possible. Uh, because even though, I mean, I mean, there's an argument that, well, these guys can sort of sidestep and, and whatnot, but I, I don't actually think that's absolutely true. Like, I think there's still enough of the population that cares about facts. It's not our job as journalists to elect politicians or, you know, get them thrown out of office. It's the job to, like, report reality as accurately as possible. And that becomes even more essential when you have someone in a position of power who's actually trying to do the opposite, to distort reality, to create confusion, to create fictional reality. 
Let me get in there, though, and unpack that a bit. I would love it if that were true. And I'll, I'll give a little context to people who aren't as familiar with Daniel Dale. He first became a journalist who a lot of people started to hear his name because he was used as a prop by Rob Ford. That when he was photographing Ford uh, and he was on public land, he got into this weird pissing match where Ford used him as evidence that the Toronto Star was on a crusade against him, that they had no respect for his privacy or his family's privacy, and uh, and that this guy was uh, you know, p- potentially breaking the law. And when you tried to pin down Ford on the exact language of what did he do and does he, you know, did he break a law and did he cross the line, it, it all kind of fell apart. To the Ford faithful, they didn't care about, you know, suddenly Daniel Dale is in this position where he didn't want to be, where he, 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 the story is about him. He's supposed to be telling the story of Ford, and suddenly he's dragged into this as this character, this paparazzi-level crusading journalist. The fact that he was not doing anything untoward got lost in the shuffle to anyone who followed Ford, and in fact, Dale was a useful device for Ford. Fast forward to Dale covering Trump, and you have what would appear to be a more mature and refined uh, Daniel Dale who knows these tricks and is probably uniquely equipped to cover somebody like Trump having covered Ford. And he was celebrated by me and, and many others for these daily digests of Trump lies, where he simply cataloged all of the falsehoods, all of the things that were not true that Trump said, and and he stripped it of any kind of analysis or any of the types of editorial devices where we can kind of betray our own bias, who you ask for a quote from, what you leave out. It's just, here's the not true stuff. And a lot of people did point to that as like, this is like a crystallized version of what journalism provides, the facts. But that too, Jeet, became a tool. And it became a tool that, that I think helped Trump because it helped a narrative that the media was just absolutely going to nail him for every little ridiculous thing. And if you've got a, a truth teller like Trump who just tells it like it is, he's going to, sure, he exaggerates or he says things in a certain way. He doesn't speak in a wonky way. And you're going to take issue with him for every little verb that you think that doesn't match your version of things. It seems like you cannot win. And the idea that we just need to go back to basics, tell the truth, report the facts, correct the errors is no insurance against not being, uh, you know, forget about like doing our job, but actually being used for somebody else's really nefarious purposes. That in and of itself is an inescapable problem. But I mean, to go back to like first principles here, though, like what is it the journalists are trying to do? And it shouldn't have been the job of journalists to defeat Donald Trump. And I think, I mean, there were people on the Democratic side who said, well, if you're covering Hillary's emails, you're going to, you know, um, make the election tighter and Trump could win. You know, let, let's step back. I mean, journalists obviously have their political opinions and have a right to do so as citizens. Job or function of journalists is not to either elect or not elect Trump. I mean, the job of journalism is to serve their readers by providing an accurate picture of reality as possible. The crisis, though, is that not all readers want that, right? That there is actually an appetite for fake news. And in some ways, you know, like there's all these sort of technological things like Facebook that kind of encourage it. And in some ways, there's a kind of breakdown of the sort of system that had once been in place, you know. We're no longer in the world where, you know, you have one or two newspapers in every city and you have like three or four uh, news channels and you have this kind of like widely shared objective 
news, which was objective simply because you know, of the market it was trying to serve. I mean, in those conditions, if you have a newspaper that's trying to get like classified ads and getting as broad an audience as possible, you want to try to take you know, a neutral approach, he said, she said. Like, the whole ecosystem is different. What is profitable now is to get clicks, and you get clicks by telling people what they want to hear. So if you have people who hate Hillary Clinton, then if you can you know, have stories that uh, Hillary Clinton is running like a child rape center in a pizza joint, <laughs> you, know, you write those stories, right? So there's a breakdown of sort of like objectivity, but I think that that's not a total breakdown. I think that there's still an audience out there that's interested in facts. And there's maybe a little bit of difference between Canada and the States. Like I think in Canada, at least, just the fact that we have the CBC that you love so much, <laughs> but I mean, just the fact that we have, you know, like a public broadcaster that is such a prominent role and that does have a kind of ethics facticity and still has sort of broad public support. I mean, that's very useful. It certainly is, and and, and uh, the United States lacks that, and and we're finally in an area where. The fact that we don't have enough people in Canada to really sustain a click-based media, like you can't really make a lot of money selling clicks in Canada, finally actually helps us. Um, yeah, I mean, Ezra Levant is trying, right? Like, and uh, yeah, uh, I mean, he's making a good go of it. No one, no one could detract from the fact that he has a very large audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, but but it is very limited. Yeah, partially because of the size of Canada. Clickbaiting is only part of it. Actually, Ezra is kind of very relevant for that because if you actually look at things like uh, Breitbart in the states. It's not just the click economy that's at work there. There's actually like dark money that's involved, right? You know, you have this kind of politicized groups. In the case of Breitbart, this sort of you know very wealthy, very right-wing family, the Mercers, who also finance Trump, who like it's in their interest to um, push the political system in a particular direction. And so, so you have like journalism that is not really journalism, but it's actually rat fucking, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that's what's going on here. We talked so much about fake news lately, and it, it happened so rapidly that it went from being like this very specific thing of just deliberately fake stories from Macedonian teenagers trying to get clicks to make a few thousand bucks to that term itself being used by Trump to ban CNN from asking him questions. Right. And to even threaten BuzzFeed that they're going to have repercussions. I mean, we're actually hearing these types of uh, tyrannical, you know, it's not, not like hyperbole. Like this is like cartoon, like, you know, yeah, yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen yeah, as the yeah. dictator saying, you know, you and the media will, will yeah, face repercussions yeah, yeah. for what you just printed. And, you know, a, a much larger force, arguably, than this fake news thing is the celebrity culture that you wrote about. And, you know, you're, you're talking about like, okay, the, the system's broken down of informed people who care about what's true and what's false, reading the news and making informed decisions as voters based on that. It's not just that that's broken. That's always been like a small group of people. And it's just so overwhelmed by this celebrity factor. Sure. The presence of the media as a character in that celebrity narrative is so much greater than whatever is happening in people's voting habits based on what the journalist is actually reporting. I think, I think that's exactly the case. And I think that is also part of the breakdown of objectivity because objectivity is kind of based on the idea that the media is separate from the story. That the you know you have uh, politicians doing something here, and you have this other group of people who are writing down what they're saying and writing it up, and there's this sort of you know distance, right? I mean, someone like Trump, but also Justin Trudeau, they kind of swim in this world of the media, right? And a lot of their success comes from being able to use things like on social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and also like stage events to create the impressions that they want. You know, this is, first of all, not new, right? Like, we had Trudeau mania in the 60s, 
<laughs> yeah, as well. Like uh, in some ways, what we're seeing now is a kind of sequel. When Kennedy was elected, there's a lot of discussion of the role of image making. Like, in fact, you argue that we should just embrace it, and the Democrats should run like Oprah. That 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 we we need to we need to accept that every time they've put up a John Kerry, an Al Gore, a Hillary Clinton, somebody who's much more of a politician and a wonk than a charismatic, they've lost. So, like, come on, it's, it's politics. Smarten up. You know, Stefan Dion is, like, a hugely impressive figure, right? Really smart about constitutional law. And, you know, Ignatieff also, uh, whatever else you want to say about him, is a kind of impressive intellectual. Paul Martin is a very formidable policymaker. And, you know, the liberals lost one, two, three. And then they, mm-hmm. you know, ran somebody who's, like, uh, you know, just charming and very photogenic, and they won. <laughs> so <laughs> it all sort of falls apart with Harper, I guess. But. Yeah, yeah. Although, yeah, I mean, even with Harper, I mean, I think he's it's at a. I mean, he was running against people who were even less charismatic than he was. <laughs> you know, like that's the. You know, like if they had run a Justin Trudeau, fifteen years ago, they never would have had. Uh, Harper elected at all. You know, people countering me say, "Well, Richard Nixon won." Yeah, Richard Nixon won against McGovern and you know Herbert Humphrey, who are like less telegenic than he was. Like as a political party that wants to win, like I think you have to absolutely factor in, you know, uh, media savvy and charisma. Right, as a separate matter from how the how journalism should continue to do to do its job. But I don't know what it is, that it is a separate matter. Uh, I, I feel like especially if those two sides uh, basically accept that okay, you, you know, th- these are the new rules. We have to we have to just accept that uh, that celebrity is the currency. And that for that to not have an impact on on our job, I mean, we're we're in an environment where at Trump's press release, he presented these files presented to the press as as evidence of this of this uh, this plan he had. Was this for his antitrust? Uh, for, for for saying that he's divesting from his holdings uh, and won't be like have conflicts of interest. And these were these were it, it seems like blank folders with blank pay- like they were props the whole thing was just was just political theater and then there are people in the audience cheering him and and instead of having sort of this uh, you know mythic kind of solidarity of journalists no you cannot ban cnn we will each ask that same question i am spartacus instead you heard like people clapping he brought like his family and supporters right so i guess my question is if it's all theater and it's celebrity versus celebrity how are we supposed to just be this like forthright force that's just like diligently just taking the facts down when we're even being cast in in some kind of prank comedy where we're a character like like it's a it's a borat film whether you like it or not you're a character in the movie there's different ways of doing Journalism, and I think that there has to be, a, you know, an array of different approaches. So I absolutely still think that the sort of Daniel Dale approach of, you know, like just trying to nail down what are the facts, what are the lies, is absolutely essential. How does authoritarianism rise? Authoritarianism arises when you have people in power who assert their will over reality, who say like, this is true because I say it's true, and so therefore I think fact checking is actually. A resistance to tyranny, mm-hmm. but there are other ways of doing journalism, and I think that in some ways the other approach, which deals with the fact that people are being manipulated, is the uh, media criticism that uses the skills of the media. I mean, I think we saw that with the Daily Show under Bush. Part of the reason why the Daily Show became such a phenomenon during the early Iraq War, and then you know, sort of lost its salience and currency uh, once Obama became president, is that I think it's very valuable to have, when, when that sort of manipulation is in place, 
to have people who know how to show manipulation and know how to do it. So are they once again that valuable? Because uh, many have been making the opposite case. Many have been making the case that your 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 you know John Stewart's and Trevor Noah's and Seth Meyers and Samantha Bees and Colbert's all of these people are actually hurting because they are contributing to this smug sense of basically that nobody likes to be ridiculed or looked down on and that kind of ironic detachment like we may well be bearing witness to to, to real atrocities I mean I, the thing is you're not going to convince everyone nor is it our job I mean like it, it, but I, I I'm just trying like there's no boundary here that holds right like you're saying earlier of course it's not journalist's job to help Hillary Clinton uh it's not journalist's job to be partisan you're supposed to just tell it like it is but if you merely correct the fact which is like no one's arguing that that's the job you're you're, you're supposed to write what's true and what's false, and you've got a candidate like Trump who's lying every second sentence, then you are de facto, you just said it, right? Like, even just to report the truth becomes a radical, like it becomes a political act just yeah, to document yeah, the yeah, truth. Yeah, yeah. The other thing to perhaps uh, realize, which people are going to have to realize, that they have to kind of be supporting journalism. And you see some of that with the sort of, you know, there's been a real increase of people taking out subscriptions to, you know, the New York Times. Isn't that and, and fascinating that, that, that all of this seemed to be kind of like um, tied into the death of the news, that this was able to happen, and yet the, the Times and, and the Post, I believe, had these massive boosts. And, and I saw a lot of places, uh, the Atlantic saying, like, now more than ever, you need to support journalism. I think we noticed a, a little bit of an uptick where people, like, maybe this is what it took to finally get people to understand that it, that you want to pick who, you know, there's just a lot of people out there who have a lot of reasons that are not that easy to see to be feeding you information. And if there's somebody you feel like has credibility for you or they're doing a job that's important to you, like now's the time to give them a dollar or two. Did you see that happening in the New Republic? Was there any kind of like Trump bounce for you? I mean, I think the one people who do investigative journalism like Mother Jones are particularly going to benefit from that. Where it's going to become an issue, I think, we might have to move away from that old school New York Times Globe and Mail model of, you know, this is the centrist objective newspaper, the, the paper of record, and then move towards the older 19th century, really partisan press that has an agenda, doesn't rely on advertising so much as subscribers and supporters, but it also has a code of ethics that tries to promote the truth, right? It's a difficult stance to take because once you have a partisan press, there's an incentive structure to lie on your own side, right? It's an easy area for the North American journalism just because that sort of model of objectivity is so powerful. But that model was really created by advertising, right? Like it's really created by historical circumstance. And uh, it certainly didn't exist in the 19th century and uh, perhaps won't exist in the 21st century. Boy, that is a fascinating, fascinating thing you bring up. I mean, it's absolutely true that the birth of the press was hyperpartisan and there was no shortage of fake news in those days as well. Yeah. Um, right now we have a situation where Breitbart and Fox and Ezra make no bones about what side they're fighting on, uh, what side they're fighting for. And that's, in, in a sense, like almost honest about what they're doing. Yeah, we, sure. we know where they're coming from now. You know, I know that if there's a story that doesn't support their politics, they won't report it. They'll either twist it or they'll just ignore it. But they're there to represent that. And meanwhile, you've got, be it CNN or the Globe and Mail, kind of fighting with a, with both hands tied behind their back because they are bound by this essentially a lie of objectivity yeah. that that the other side has no uh, has, has no responsibility to. 
And perhaps what's actually needed is, and you're sort of starting to sort of see this in podcasting, in like that there are these sort of breakaway media efforts that almost remind me of the birth of American right wing talk radio. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to find a smaller space to fight back. And you've seen it before. Like I think there was a certain type of blogging culture that started in the early days of the Iraq War. Uh, people, you know, who were disgusted not just by the stuff the Bush administration was doing, but the way in which the New York Times was going along with that. Going back into the 60s, you know, you had the sort of IF Stone model, which became the sort of roots of the underground press. And IF Stone, you know, had very strong kind of like left-wing politics, would never be able to publish in the New York Times. He was able to like report stuff about the Vietnam War and about the deception that was going on that didn't make the mainstream press. Yeah, I mean, you know, Izzy Stone... Everyone knew what side he was on and you could delegitimize him. It was very much easier in those days to delegitimize somebody as a radical. But like if he was able to uncover things about Vietnam that nobody else was, you know, you you can shoot the messenger. You can try to provide a counter narrative. But like the truth just kind of keeps coming back. It's hard to suppress that eventually, even if you have hyper partisan voices, maybe even within that violence between them, that, that rhetorical violence, you'll get more stuff exposed. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways covering these Trump press conferences or even covering Trump's tweets. I mean, you, ha- you kind of have to do that because he has this power and you have to know what he's saying. But, you know, like what Hirsch and uh, Stone did was they never, you know, would you know, go to like Lyndon Johnson or Nixon's press conference. They would like go out to lunch with middle management people in the Pentagon and the CIA, you know, who had evidence uh, that was that uh, they wanted out there. Well, yeah, everything from ideological whistleblowers to, to people with petty gripes. Yeah. I mean, any, anybody can have the truth. You know, it's it's a funny thing. It's a separate conversation, I suppose. But but the virtue of the whistleblower of the source is such an independent factor from the value of the information. But you know, I have colleagues in Washington. What they're going to be doing is tuning out to a certain degree. You know, Trump's press conferences and going to the people. Yeah, that's where the action is. And, and, and y- y- there's this circus on the main stage. But then you want to know, like, when this guy goes back with his people, what's getting said? Like, what's actually going on? Let me bring this full circle. I, I know you got to go in a second. I, I, I just want to know, uh, to a lot of people listening, it's like, what is the, what concern is, is this of Canada lands? Uh, our, our mandate is very clear. In fact, we exist almost because there's such a lack of scrutiny on our own media in this country. I am convinced that the the ramifications that this is going to have on the American press, we are not inured from them here. And, you know, I've heard it argued and Stephen Marsh has argued that Canada stands alone as the world's last country that's just uh, continues to embrace liberalism and multiculturalism. I'm very skeptical about, you know, that firewall, if it's if it's a wall or a tissue like and. and yeah, yeah, no, no, I mean, absolutely. I think that. I mean, what people have to understand is that it's not like, you know, Canadians are better than anyone else. I mean, it's really contingent on uh, sort of social circumstances that could very easily change. A uh, matter of the economy going south and perhaps a few rich people deciding that, you know, it makes sense for them to fund an Ezra Levant type effort. And then, you know, like, or, or you know. Um, At the same moment that, you know, post media and some other places are dying. You know, like, it's just like a, a our, our reality and our circumstances here are so fragile. Fascism is always a potentiality in a modern mass democracy. It, you just have to have the right circumstances and any nation can become fascist. So once again, how do I do my job, Jeet? How do I do my job? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think what you're, I mean, I think something like Canada Land is in a pretty good position because, even because of the revenue sources that you have, I mean, I mean, to go back, uh, I mean, with some of the stuff, I mean, I think part of it might have to deal with uh, dealing with things like Ezra Levant, 
like, like to actually call it out by their name. And, and you're absolutely right that it's not just clickbait. It's really rat-fucking. You know, rat-fucking, I'm not being insulting. It's, it's a technical term <laughs> that was, was coined. Rat-fucking, <laughs> I'm not being insulting. Yeah, I know. It was no, I know. that's got a specific meaning. I know. Yeah, it's a specific meaning uh, coined by members of the Nixon administration, sometimes involving, you know, creating fake media stories, right? So. All right, Jeet. It's been uh, interesting. To, I, I've, I don't know if I have any more clarity than I did when I began, <laughs> but I guess we just got to wake up every morning and do what we do. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, it, was, it was great talking to you. Likewise. Okay. That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me whenever you want. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Later this week, you can look forward to The Imposter, new episode out on Wednesday, and Shortcuts will be out on Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. Syndication is handled by Russell Gragg. If you like what we do... Please support us.